Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. You know, yesterday I was at Snap Fitness and I was watching a Billy Graham crusade. You believe that? Uh, of course, uh, I had the remote with me, so... We turned on Billy, and uh, he was uh, preaching about sin. Can you believe that? He was preaching about sin in San Francisco Bay, okay, in 1983. It was a sermon that there is no way he could preach today. And that stadium was packed. There was, I mean, it was, it was just amazing. And every, every, uh, just about every sentence he said, I'm sitting there going, couldn't say that today. Oh, he couldn't say that one. <laughs> and, uh, 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 but uh, Billy was uh, an amazing, amazing vessel that God used for the glory of God. So uh, we have to deal with the issue of sin for us to be that shining lighthouse. Okay, we're going to be talking about that uh, today, you want to be a shining lighthouse to your friends and neighbors, your family. Uh, we have to deal with that in our lives, bearing fruit with truth. That's our topic today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much, God, that uh, you are here. You are alive today. We sense your presence, God. You are moving in power today. Oh, Lord, we love you. Uh, fill me with your spirit today that what I say is pleasing in your sight, God. And Lord, uh, Father, I just pray that our minds would be open to your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Folks, there is a war on truth. Yeah. God's people are under siege. Nothing illustrates this better than the gay rights movement. 1987, there were two homosexual activists named Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. Madsen used the uh, pen name of Erastus Pill. And they wrote this article here called The Overhauling of Straight America. And folks, they had their work cut out for them. Because the next year, a poll showed, 1988, that 75% of Americans believed that sex between two people of the same gender was always wrong. Can you imagine that? 75%. Kirk and Madsen laid out a six-point strategy to overturn that, to radically change America's perception of homosexual behavior. Here are their six points. Number one, talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. Number two, portray gays as victims, not aggressive challengers. Number three, give homosexual protectors a just cause. Number four, make gays look good. Number five, make the victimizers look bad. Number six, solicit funds by getting corporate America and major foundations to financially support the homosexual cause. It was a brilliant strategy. 
and it was executed with perfection and with the full support of Hollywood and the political left, over and over again, movie producers portrayed gays as the heroes and Bible-believing Christians as narrow-minded bigots and hypocrites. And meanwhile, the entire time, gay advocates are infiltrating positions, leadership positions, in virtually every mainline denomination, and they were relentless in promoting their agenda. Little by little, they simply wore out the opposition. I remember Governor Alqui, who was... uh, he was holding to biblical truth within the Lutheran denomination. Remember him coming out? They were interviewing him, and one of those uh, TV uh, um, reporters was interviewing him. He, the guy was wore out. He did everything he could, and, and they just wore him out. But that was part of the playbook. Kirk and Madsen and the overhauling of straight America, they wrote the main thing, quote, the main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome, unquote. Over and over again, Episcopal, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran conferences, gay advocates brought up their resolutions. They formed their, gay, their uh, study committees until the opponents finally just said, forget it, let the gays have their way. But they didn't stop there. Little by little, they continued to push the envelope in any way possible, from civil unions to gay marriage to transgender rights to a full-scale campaign to sexualize our children in the earliest grades possible. And now, here in the state of Minnesota, new licensing requirements are proposed for teachers in the state of Minnesota, beginning July 1st, 2024, you will have to affirm the gay agenda to be licensed in the state of Minnesota. At a gay rights convention, this was 24 years ago. You see, how in the world did they do that? 24 years ago, gay rights convention, uh, 1999, one of the speakers said this, quote, The fear of the religious right is that the schools of today will be the governments of tomorrow. And you know, they're right. If we do our jobs correctly, we're going to raise a generation of kids who don't believe the claims of the religious right, unquote. Heartland family that day is here. By by, uh, 2021, only 30% of Americans believed that gay sex is morally wrong. In the span of 33 years, support for the biblical worldview on homosexuality has declined from 75% to 30%. Kirk and Madsen's campaign to overhaul straight America, (laughs) it succeeded beyond their wildest expectations. But you know what? The Bible says, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The next verse says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He chose to give us birth 
through the word of truth. We are born again by the truth of God's word. We live by the truth of God's word. It does not change like shifting shadows. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, 7. You know what? We as God's people, we live by the word of God. If we abandon the word of God, we abandon the only thing in the universe that gives us hope. If we want to turn the tide on the coming tsunami, we have to cling to this word like it's a life preserver. Because it is. And that is why the Apostle Paul does not mince words here in 1 Corinthians 5. He issues five warnings about the dangers of sin. The first one is this. Don't sidestep it. That's what Corinth was doing. Verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now, this was likely a stepmother, not a mother. Uh, but intimacy with either was considered detestable sins in Leviticus 18. And from Cicero and others, we know that such incest was also forbidden under Roman law. From verse 1, we can draw three conclusions about this relationship. First, it was ongoing, since it says, a man has his father's wife. Second, this relationship probably broke up his father's marriage, because adultery is not charged. So apparently, neither the man or the woman were legally married at the time. And third, because Paul called for discipline for the man and not the woman, we can conclude that the man claimed to be a Christian, but the woman did not. So their relationship was not only immoral, it was also unequally yoked. And worse yet, the church at Corinth just tolerated the whole thing. They simply looked the other way. But here's the deal. If you truly love someone, you can't look the other way. This is a dilemma all of us face when we have professing Christian friends and families who, family who fall into sin. Jude 22 put it like this. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now let's say a friend of yours claims to be a believer, and she is thinking about moving in with her boyfriend. People who claim to be Christians don't typically do this just out of the blue. The first step is usually what happened to Adam and Eve. They began to doubt. They began to doubt whether God really is a good God. They began to wonder whether God is holding out on them. If you have a friend who is wondering about this, you can help them wrestle through their doubts. You can ask them, what is it about God's word that doesn't make sense to you? And you prayerfully dialogue with them. 
If they follow through with their plans, you need to ask God, Lord, how can I gracefully give them a warning? Hey, I care about you enough to tell you you're playing with fire here. God doesn't make idle threats. The Bible says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to go to heaven. Now, mixed in with this warning is mercy. That's what Jude 23 says. Show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. God wants us to hate the false ideologies of our world that entrap the people that we love. All of us need to live with the fear of God. As a pastor, my continual prayer, even this morning as I was preparing for this message, praying that I will never mislead anyone when it comes to God's word. I don't want to mislead you today. And that is why I refuse to sidestep the topic of sin. It is so toxic to us. I refuse the temptation to look the other way. And this leads to the second warning about sin. Don't celebrate it. Verse 2. And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? The church at Corinth not only winked at sin, they were patting themselves on the back for being such a loving and affirming church. If they could put a sign out front, it would say, we are a sin-affirming church. Live however you want. Believe however you want. And if anyone would have questioned what they were doing, their leaders would have said, oh, you just have to love them. Don't judge them. We are a big tent church. We affirm everybody no matter what they do or how they live. But the Apostle Paul has a message for them, doesn't he? Instead of celebrating, he says, you should be weeping. When I read Paul's words here in verse 2, I cannot help but think... (laughs) If God gave him just a little preview of America in the 21st century, these massive gay pride festivals, which are becoming increasingly common, they should leave a pit in the stomach of any God-fearing person. The attempt to normalize evil, it is relentless. English poet Alexander Pope put it like this. He said, vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet, seen too often, familiar with her face, we first endure and then we pity and then we embrace. When we first experience evil, we're repulsed by it, right? Right? I was telling one of my daughters, I said, you know, uh, what do you think of pedophiles? She said, well, Dad, I think they're pretty bad. I said, 
that's how, that's how we were raised to think about homosexuals, you know? I mean, that's, you know, 50 years ago, that was the thoughts that we had. This is so evil. It's apart from God's plan for us. That's why Kirk and Madsen said the first step in overhauling straight America is talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. Now, here's another stat. 1983, 70% of Americans, 7 out of 10, said they didn't know a single person who was homosexual. Can you even imagine that? As, as Alexander Pope said, at first there was toleration, and then there was pity as the AIDS epidemic exploded in the 1980s. And then there was embracing as President Clinton became the first president to recognize June as Gay Pride Month, the year 1999. Now the same could be said of many other evils that have plagued our society. They've come out in the open, drunkenness. There was a day when that was considered shameful. Marijuana, <laughs> gambling, Abortion, pornography. Remember when pornography was hidden? When uh, to see an X-rated movie, you'd have to go down into the seediest part of the city, and it's not that way today, is it? There was a day when all of these things were hidden, but that time is no more. Familiarity has led to acceptance. Acceptance has led to celebration. The Bible says we should be grieving. Not because a rule was broken, but because sin destroys you. Sin destroys precious people that we love, and it does it from the inside out. You rot from the inside out, like termites, it eats away at the fabric of your soul until only an empty shell is left. And that brings us to the third warning about sin. The third warning is to deal with it. Verse 3 says, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. And when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, it's important here to realize that the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth, they're dealing with a very scandalous situation. Verse 1 says something that doesn't even occur among the pagans. The church at Corinth had a long track record of just simply looking the other way. Any parent knows what's going to happen if you don't deal with the little stuff, right? The little stuff turns into big stuff. 
I can remember playing at a friend's house when I was maybe four or five, coming home with my friend's tractor. And we were getting out of my dad's pickup. My dad says, where'd you get that tractor? And I hemmed and I hawed and I finally fessed up. And dad put me right back in that pickup. And we went back over to my friend's house. And I had to go up to his dad and said, I took your, your son's tractor. I am sorry. Okay? Never forgot that lesson. Gave the tractor back. Now, if a parent doesn't deal with such things, what happens? <laughs> you end up with problems, don't you? Lots of them. What should have been happening at Corinth is what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now see, there's a process here for dealing with sin among your Christian friends. Someone sins against you, talk to them privately, okay? If they don't acknowledge your sin, ask for forgiveness, seek to make the restitution uh, where possible. The restitution, folks, is giving the tractor back, right? <laughs> then, what do you do? You take a couple others with you, you try again, that doesn't work. Church leaders involved, that doesn't work. It may come to the place where you need to separate from that person. It's possible the entire church body may need to separate from them, but that should only be done after all other possibilities are exhausted. But you know what? Here is the truth. Some people only learn things the hard way. And let me tell you about three of them in the Bible. Lot. Samson, Solomon, all three of them were reluctant to deal with sin in their lives and in the lives, sin in the lives of those under their care. And all three suffered serious consequences. What happened a lot? He lost his wife and he thoroughly messed up his daughters. Read Genesis 19. What happened to Samson? Well, he allowed himself to be seduced after three warnings. You remember the story, right? Three times God said, hey, this woman is not good for you. <laughs> On the fourth time, she betrays him. And ultimately, it cost him his life. How about Solomon? Wasted much of his life on trivia. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where he pours that out. It's meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. I got all this money, I got all these women, I got all this stuff. And it's meaningless. It didn't bring him satisfaction. Solomon died relatively young man. He was about 18 when he took the throne, which means he was about 58 years old when God took him. All three, their sinful nature was purged, but their souls were saved. 
And we know that because later in the Bible, it affirms that Lot was a righteous man. He was saved. Samson, Hebrews 11, Solomon, definitely. Look at the end of Ecclesiastes. All three of them were saved. But they suffered a lot from the sin in their lives. Bottom line is that open, unrepentant sin has got to be dealt with. Which brings us to the fourth warning. Be decisive. Don't play around. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, it works through the whole batch of dough? And get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. See, sin is like cancer. It doesn't stay isolated. And unless it is removed, it will infect the entire body of believers. Recently, I read A Burning in My Bones, biography of Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, paraphrase of the Bible, it's inspired millions. Eugene is a master wordsmith, greatly used of God, and yet he made some serious missteps toward the end of his life and they have been a tremendous stumbling block to many. Eugene insisted that the doctrine of inerrancy is misleading. He entertained the idea that the Bible could contain errors. Friends, God says he will not lie. He toyed with universalism, the teaching that everyone will be saved. Eugene Peterson endorsed heretics like Rob Bell, the author of Love Wins. If Rob Bell isn't a heretic, there isn't any such thing. And he endorsed William Paul Young, the author of The Shack. And he bragged about same-sex couples in his church and affirmed them. He endorsed gay marriage. And then he recanted after Christian bookstores pulled all his books. Who? this is serious. So he took it back. Eugene battled with dementia in his later years. I sincerely hope that some of this can be attributed to his mental struggles. The gay community, while they were cheering one day, he's with us, mourning the next. Maybe he's not. You see, truly, a little yeast, it works through the whole batch of dough. When a popular Christian blogger like Jen Hatmaker, when she endorses gay marriage in 2016, it has a ripple effect across the evangelical world. All of her followers out there, they're faced with a decision. Do I continue to follow her or not? Those carrying her books, they have to make a decision. Do I continue to sell them or not? Those she was associated with, like Christianity Day magazine, they have to make a decision. Do we cut ties or not? And you know what? Christianity Today had a hard time doing that. And it raised a lot of 
mixed messages. Are they Christianity today or are they Christianity astray? What are they? In 2020, Jen Hatmaker divorced her pastor husband, Brandon. The same husband with whom she had hosted a TV series, Your Big Family Renovation, back in 2015. So the TV series comes out in 2015. Christians across the nation are celebrating this. Look at this, you know, a pastor and his wife, and they had five children. They're all part of this wonderful show. 2016, she endorses gay marriage. 2020, she divorces her husband. 2022, Jen announces she has a new boyfriend. And from all appearances, there sure seems to be some yeast there that is continuing to work through the dough. You see, folks, more and more, God's people, we're faced with decisions. Who are we going to allow into our inner circle of close friends? And the Bible challenges us, be decisive. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And that leads right into our fifth warning about sin, and that is to keep your distance. And we know a little something about that, don't we? You know, that's a picture from the COVID era. Verse 9, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. <laughs> you know, in other words, we, we have to do business. We have to conduct business with these people and so forth. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slander, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. Now the key word in this passage is the word associate. The Greek word means to mix together. It means to mingle with. It means to keep company with. It means to be close friends with. It refers to non-sexual intimacy, it refers to the people you hang out with on a regular basis. My besties, my best friends. The Bible warns us about having close relationships with those who claim to be Christians but aren't living it. If you're close to somebody, you know what they're really like when no one's looking. And sooner or later, we all show our true stripes, don't we? The Apostle Paul puts it straight to us in 1 Corinthians 15, He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. In the next verse, he says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. Again, this is referring to having close friendships. The Bible's clear. If you have close ties with non-Christians, you are in danger of being unequally yoked. 
if you have close ties with professing Christians who aren't living it, that's almost worse because you, have, you are in danger of being corrupted by their calloused hearts that have been seared, they've seared their conscience to the things of God. Now let's be clear, in most cases, this doesn't mean you have to break all ties. In a few situations, that might be necessary. But in most situations, you can continue to have a casual relationship with both professing Christians who aren't living with it and with non-Christians. And in both cases, we will seek to point these friends to Jesus. I like to look at it like this. You're going to be in my inner circle. You have to be on good terms with my bestie, who is Jesus. You're not on good terms with him. i got to keep my distance. We can be friends, but we can't be close friends. I close with this. It's one of the hardest challenges that we face as Christians today. And it is to be full of grace and truth. And Jesus blended these two with such beauty. He is, hands down, the most loving person who ever walked our earth. No doubt about it. And at the same time, his entire life, he is the very embodiment of truth. No one else could say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It is virtually inevitable that each of us will come down on one side or the other. Either you will lean toward truth or you will lean toward grace. If you lean toward truth, like me, you need grace-filled people in your life. And you need to seek them out because your tendency will be to want to, you, you'll want to hang out with your fellow truthers. If you lean toward grace, you need truth-filled people in your life. And you need to seek them out because your tendency will be to want to hang out with your fellow gracers. I was telling somebody this week that my mom and dad, my dad was a gracer. You know, my dad's, uh, his life slogan was, number one, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't sweat the big stuff. And uh, number two is, uh, or don't sweat the little stuff. Don't sweat the little stuff. Number two is, it's all little stuff. You know, that was his, that was his slogan through life. And uh, he was, he was a, a tremendous greaser. My mom was a truther, you know. Uh, boy, she pinned you down. Who are you dating? Do they know Jesus? <laughs> I always felt mom in the back seat. <laughs> you know, mom was there, you know, and uh, she was a truther. Uh, and uh, so we both are needed, folks. You can't have truth at the expense of grace. You can't have grace at the expense of truth. 
Now, you see, the, the gay rights movement, they have thrown the Christian church a curveball because of their insistence of defining, of defining their key identity as being gay. Friends, gay Christian is an oxymoron. You can't be a gay Christian. You can be a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction, absolutely. But you can't be a gay Christian. The two don't fit together. That very concept is foreign to the Word of God. Your core identity has nothing to do with your sexual desires. And by the way, we're all sexually broken people. All of us. Rather, the Bible defines us differently. The Bible defines us as human beings in two ways, common to every human being on the earth. First, according to Genesis 1.26, we're created in the image of God. We are image bearers. Each and every human being is an image bearer of a holy God with his innate goodness in each of us. But the Bible also defines us, Romans 3.23, as sinners in need of a Savior. We are sin corrupted, all of us. Sin has so marred and corrupted the image of God in us, we are all hopelessly alienated from our Creator. We are all sin-corrupted image bearers of a holy God. All of us. Every person you meet on the street, those two things are true of them. They're a sin-corrupted image bearer of a holy God. Romans 3.10 puts it like this, there is no one righteous, not even one. (laughs) There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then a few verses down it says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. See, that is... God's indictment of the human race. Each and every person is an image bearer of God who has been corrupted beyond hope by sin. That is our shared identity as human beings. All eight billion residents of planet Earth share that identity. That is who we are. All other identities fall short. Gay, straight, black, white, American, Mexican, conservative, liberal, Catholic, Protestant, dog lover, basket weaver, football player, stockbroker, all of them fall short of capturing the essence of who you are. The Bible says you're an image bearer of God corrupted by sin. But there is a third identity, praise God. There is a third identity, some have it and some don't. And that identity is saved by the blood of Christ. So I can tell you today, Denny Johnson is a blood-bought, sin-corrupted image bearer of a holy God. That's who Denny Johnson is. That is my core identity. Ephesians 2.4 says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved 
through faith. That's the gospel truth. You can have your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. You can have your desires, all of them, reshaped by the Spirit of God. Do you want that with all your heart? 